Hello everybody and welcome back to another macabre mini mystery. If you're new here then welcome, my name's Nikki. And if you're not new then nice to see you again and thanks for joining me whilst I disappear down another rabbit hole of mystery. Today I'll be looking at something that I honestly never thought I'd be covering on my channel and you may be thinking, ooh it's gonna be bad if even she, the mistress of the macabre, the dame of death, won't talk about it. But it's sports. I personally find the observation of people carrying out physical exercise repugnant, to say the least. And so you know if I'm willing to cover it on an episode, then there must be more besides the usual throwing of a football match or someone taking performance-enhancing drugs, which, quite frankly, I think it would be far more exciting to watch sports if that was encouraged more. Just imagine week-long events of ridiculously super-buff, strangely-proportioned humans carrying out combo sports like diving onto trampolines or running whilst throwing javelins at your opponents. Sounds like way more of an interesting watch to me. And I'm incredibly sad at the human race for not making that happen. Yet. However, whilst those activities may sound far-fetched, the Olympic Games held in 1904 weren't far off, particularly the marathon event. And whilst we won't be encountering anything too dark today, things will be getting incredibly weird. So strap on your running shoes and join me in a race to the finish line on today's macabre mini mystery. Now, before we descend into our story, if you are new here and you like weird and wonderful stories, dark, spooky history and the occasional bit of true crime, then do please hit that subscribe button and check out some of my other videos as I'm sure there's plenty here to keep you entertained. And I'd love to have you join us ghouls in the ghoul gang. So today's episode, well, let's just say if there were ever medals handed out for how not to host an athletic event, then this one would win gold. Let me take you back in time to St. Louis in 1904. An enormous event was taking place in St. Louis that year. The Louisiana Purchase Exposition, which became known as the St. Louis World's Fair, was being held at the time, which was a chance for the world to show off its advancements, share in some revelry at a gigantic theme park, and to make some abhorrent decisions. The St. Louis World's Fair was a completely purpose-built world of its own, Imposing yet elegant buildings were created just for the eight months the fair ran, and nothing was too big or too temporary to create. A full-size zoo was one of the attractions, as was a full-size museum, restaurants, art galleries, a full-size exhibition hall, and a myriad of other incredible one-time use creations. On show at the fair were some incredible new advancements in technology. The first x-ray machine, the personal car, and even outdoor electric lighting were on display. 
But despite all of this wondering and amazement, the organisers still found time to carry out some despicable behaviour of making an anthropology area where indigenous people from all over the world were shipped in and put on display in areas that were human zoos. Sets had been made to replicate where they were from and the various tribes were paraded around where the public could take pictures with them in a bizarre display of racial superiority. The fair boasted that they had 40 different tribes on display and with trafficking happening from the Arctic to the Congo, these people were rather unsurprisingly treated horrifically. Vast numbers of people from the Philippines were trafficked into Louisiana and many didn't survive the journey or not for long after they arrived, and were unceremoniously dumped in Louisiana cemeteries in mass graves. Those who did survive were forced to entertain those at the fair by fighting, mudslinging, and generally carrying out games for jeering spectators to watch. Only men were allowed to compete, and in an anthropological experiment, and for all my listeners of the podcast, please be aware that that was very much in heavy air quotes, Different races of people were pitted against each other to determine who was the best at sports. Surprise, surprise, white people crowned themselves the best at sports, and primitive people, again, heavy air quotes there, were deemed inferior. These contrived and barbaric sports, which were referred to as the Savage Olympics, were a world away from the other sporting spectacle being held at the fair that year, the Summer Olympics. Originally, Chicago won the bid to host the 1904 Olympics, but when the organisers of the Louisiana Fair found out, they decided to kick up a fuss, saying that they simply wouldn't accept another international event whilst theirs was being held. So when Chicago began preparations for the Olympics, the organisers of the Louisiana Fair got in touch and said, I don't think so, we're just going to throw a huge sporting event, bigger than yours, and no one will care about your insignificant Olympics. After numerous arguments, the organiser of the Games, Pierre de Coubertin, and sorry for butchering that name as I probably have done, stepped in and announced the Games would be moving from Chicago to Louisiana and be part of the fair so as to not cause a sports-off of epic proportions. With the new location decided, the Games were ready to go ahead. At this particular groundbreaking Olympics, new events would be seen that had never been part of the Olympics before, such as freestyle wrestling, and the decathlon, but some activities which would be laughed at today were also part of the games, such as the tug of war, and in total only 651 people competed in 16 sports across 94 events, as opposed to the last Olympics in 2016, which had 28 sports, 41 disciplines, 306 events, and 11,238 athletes, so just a smidge more. Despite it being a relatively small event to the behemoth of sporting prowess we know today, the 1904 Olympics did have some surprising winners. For example, one man, Frank Kugler, won a whopping four gold medals across three different sports, something which is virtually unheard of today, and from what I can work out, has never been repeated since. But old Frank jangled back home with four gold medals around his neck, having come first place in weightlifting, freestyle wrestling, and the tug of war. Is it tug of war or tug of war? Or is it interchangeable? Let me know in the comments below. Frank wasn't the only surprise at the games that year, but an unlikely contestant outshone many of his competitors, winning gold in six gymnastic events. Why was this unusual, you may ask? Well, George Iser, the winner, had a wooden leg. 
In a time before the Paralympics, this man took on all the non-disabled competitors and beat them not once, but six times. Rather unsurprisingly, the diversity of the competing nations was very thin on the ground. With only 62 of the 651 athletes being from outside North America, as such, the majority of gold medal wins were by Americans, giving them a hugely weighted disproportion of the Olympic clout. Arguably one of the most prestigious sports in the whole of the Olympics is the marathon. Only added to the roster of activities in 1896, this gruelling 26.2 mile long endurance race is horrendously challenging, even in the best conditions, but at the 1904 Olympics it was made almost impossible to run. Along the course, the runners would face some incredibly terrible conditions. To start with, the temperature was stagnating around the 32 degree mark, that's in the 90s for all my Americans out there, and the humidity was equally stifling. Not to mention that the course was littered with very steep inclines and descents which would have made running even more taxing. And unlike the closed-off streets for marathons today, the roads were still being used by the public, forcing the runners to dodge traffic, cross railroads and watch out for animals along the way. If that wasn't bad enough, the dust on the course was also inches thick and sharp, which made it difficult to breathe even before the race began. The conditions were bad enough for seasoned runners, but some of these men were woefully underprepared for what they were about to undertake. First of all, participants turning up to the event were not marathon runners. Well, the majority weren't. Out of the 32 competitors, only a handful had any long-distance running experience. A few placed before in the Boston Marathon and previous Olympics, but the majority of the group were middle-distance runners at best. For example, one competitor, Fred Laws, was a bricklayer by day and a runner by night. The only reason he was allowed into the competition was due to him running a five-mile race, which was fine if there wasn't another 21.2 miles left to run after that. Ten of the competitors had travelled from Greece to compete, but none of them had ever run a marathon. Two men that had been trafficked in from South Africa as part of the Louisiana Fair were allowed to compete, but only one of them had running shoes, so had to compete on the rocky terrain barefoot. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Felix Carbajal, again, probably a name I'm butchering, so I'm really sorry. A Cuban who had been crowdfunding his efforts to compete in the race had at least been in training for the event. 
In order to raise the money to get to the Olympics, he'd carried out a trek of the whole length of Cuba. But that was walking and not running, which are definitely not the same thing. Felix was so excited when he arrived in the States, he decided to gamble his travel money and lost. So in order to even get to the games, he had to hitchhike and rely on other people's carriages to take him to the race. Felix's lack of experience really shone through when he arrived at the start line with all the other runners, dressed in a shirt, suit trousers and ankle boots, in 32 degree heat. One of the other competitors had a word with five foot tall Felix about his unsuitable attire and acquired some scissors, cutting off his trousers and turning them into shorts, so he didn't instantly die from exhaustion or, worse, chafing. At 3.03 on the 30th of August, the starting pistol was fired and the unlikely band of brothers set off on their slightly shorter than a normal marathon 24-mile endurance test. Only a mile into the race, the marathon nearly had its first fatality. Californian runner William Garcia toppled over on the course after inhaling so much dust that the sharp shards ripped open his stomach lining and coated his throat so fully that he began hemorrhaging and almost died. Luckily, he received the life-saving treatments he needed in time and survived, but he was of course knocked out of the race. Not long after, the dust got to another runner who began violently vomiting up the ingested dirt. Rather unsurprisingly, he decided to give the rest of the race a miss and bailed out only a short way in. Other runners hitting the halfway mark did very well in the appalling conditions, but as they were inexperienced, their bodies were beginning to give up on them. A build-up of lactic acid was causing excruciating cramps for some runners, and this caused many of them to stop for a rest or to give up altogether. One thing that was also a huge hindrance to the runners was the lack of water on the course. The organiser of the race, James Sullivan, purposefully decided to place only two water stations on the whole of the course. Two. Just two. The reason being that James was a sick individual who decided that he would be experimenting on these poor race runners as he wanted to see what would happen if they were purposefully dehydrated. So not only did they have all the dust to contend with, the heat, but also hardly any chance for rehydration. Now throw into that mix the number of vehicles on the route that were driving alongside the runners, the dust was being continuously churned into the air, making it even worse for them all. So let's check in with our aforementioned runners and see how they're getting on at this point. Well, Len Tao, one of our South African competitors, has now been chased off course for a mile by wild dogs, but has managed to make his way back onto the course. And five-foot Felix, in search of a snack, stole some peaches from some spectators who refused to hand them over when he asked politely. A little while later, he then ate two rotten apples in an orchard and decided to have a nap after he felt sick. Back on the course, and with those that weren't asleep or fleeing from wild animals, the runners that were still going were beginning to have some real issues. Those who had cramps and were still battling through were now beginning to reach the end of their tether. Thomas Hicks, an actual proper marathon runner who was one of the handful of competitors who had done this before at the Boston Marathon, but not in such appalling conditions, was struggling. At the 10.5 mile mark and in the lead by a mile and a half, he decided to stop and lie down on the course as he was completely exhausted and suffering from extreme dehydration. Seeing him suffering, his coaches stepped in to help. You'd think they might have given him some water, 
that they refused his requests, but they did allow him to suck on a sponge filled with warm water. The reasoning behind the lack of water being that dehydration supposedly helped athletes, something which was obviously later proved false, and probably even at this stage seeing Thomas in such a state could have easily been noted, but science. Mixing up a concoction of egg whites and strychnine, which if you listened and watched my last two episodes, then you'll know all about strychnine and how deadly it can be, they fed that concoction to keep him going. So why were they poisoning Thomas? Well, strychnine was thought to be a stimulant for athletes and could bring you around and get you going again in small enough doses. In a time before doping regulations, this was absolutely legal and fine to do in the games. And it also wasn't uncommon for brandy to be used by many athletes as it strengthened the constitution. With the rat poison protein omelette consumed, Hicks perked up and was able to keep going but he would regularly dip again, and as such was perked up with further doses of strychnine. Now, remember Fred Laws, our part-time runner, full-time bricklayer? Well, he too is now suffering with unbearable cramps, and so to rectify this, what did he do? Have a nap? Take some strychnine? No. He flagged down a car and jumped in, asking them to drive him a bit of the way. And by a bit, I mean quite a lot of the way. Hicks, who had by this point received several doses of strychnine, was beginning to hallucinate. As the poison took effect on his body, he stumbled around, walking most of the rest of the way. Unbeknownst to Hicks, who was now higher than Snoop Dogg on 420, Laws sped past him in the car, and after being driven for 11 miles, the car broke down. Fred hopped out six miles or so before the finish line, and ran the rest of the way. As he crossed the finish line, people cheered and congratulated him on winning, but his cheating had been rumbled. A race official saw Laws hopping out of the car and snitched on him, and he was instantly disqualified for cheating. So who was now set to win? Felix, our napping fruit thief, had woken up and was still going, as was Len, who had managed to escape the pack of wild dogs and was back on course. But due to both of them being unsuitably dressed for the occasion, and their detours both were still a long way behind the strychnine adult Thomas. Unbelievably, Thomas was still in the lead on the course, but a mile before the end, he was close to dying. Two miles back, word had got to him that Laws had been disqualified, so he perked up and got himself together to finish the race. After a brief period where he was given yet again some warm water to soak his body and another dose of strychnine, he was able to march on. However, his hallucinations had become so strong that he thought just one mile before the end of the race that there were still 20 miles left to run. The last mile was agonising for him and his coaches fed him more egg whites, strychnine and brandy, and just a few metres from the finish line, his legs gave out. After having seen him go through such hardships, his coaches picked him up as he waved his legs like he was still running as he couldn't hold himself up, and he passed over the finish line, winning the race. There's no way that Thomas would have been allowed to do that in this day and age in the Olympics, but all things considered, I think being carried a few metres over the finish line is slightly more sportsmanlike than getting a lift. After lying in a crumpled heap for an hour or so, Thomas eventually came too. He had to have the assistance of four doctors to bring him back around, and when he was weighed after the race, he had lost an incredible eight pounds. Thomas's final runtime was 3 hours 28 minutes and 45 seconds. 
as opposed to the current world record of 2 hours, 6 minutes and 32 seconds. To be fair to him, that's still faster than I think a lot of us could do it in, if at all. So what happened to our other competitors? Well, only 14 out of the 32 crossed the finish line. First place was Thomas Hicks, our strychnine hero. Second was Albert Corey, a French immigrant who, due to his status at the time, won the medal for America. Third was Arthur Newton, a seasoned marathon runner who had finished fifth in the Olympic marathon in Paris in 1900. And then in fourth place, want to take a guess? Felix, our five-foot Cuban napping fruit thief. Despite having had a substantial break during the event, he just managed to miss out on the top spot. But if he'd not succumbed to food poisoning, he would have definitely at least taken bronze. Lesson learned, don't eat free ground fruit. Oh, and Len, who ran the whole course without shoes and narrowly avoided being ripped apart by wild dogs, did finish, coming in ninth, and two of the ten Greeks finished coming in at fifth and tenth place. No mean feat for people that had never run a marathon before. So what happened to Laws and Hicks after the marathon? Well, Laws wasn't disgraced forever. He was allowed to enter the Boston Marathon the next year, and Hicks survived to run another day, joining Laws at the start line. This time, Laws actually did beat Hicks without the use of a car, winning the marathon. So there we have it, the story of the 1904 Olympic marathon that went completely wrong, and to be honest, probably the only sporting event I'll ever be interested in. Thank you for joining me for another video. If you enjoyed that and you're still here even at this stage, then do yourself a favour if you haven't already and subscribe so we can hang out more and I can tell you weird stuff like this. And please give the video a thumbs up, leave a comment, let me know who your favourite marathon runner was, and also leave a rating on the podcast because it really helps me with the pesky algorithms. A huge big thanks to our executive Patreon producers, Sam, Barry, Veronica, Sarah, Kate and Mary, and all of our other patrons too. You are so very appreciated. And if you want more content from me, like the new show I have on Patreon, which is regaling the weird things I find in old newspapers when I'm carrying out my research, then you can head over there to find that. And there's a few episodes to catch up on too. Access to extra content starts at just $5 a month, which is about £4, and supporting the show starts at just $1, so about 50p. And you can also get some tangible goodies too, depending on what tier you sign up to. I'll leave the link in the description for Patreon so you can check that out at your leisure if you want to. Thank you for joining me for another macabre mini mystery. I've been Nikki Drews and I'll see you ghouls next time. <laughs>